Good morning, everybody. We are in the Gospel of John. Um, Going to hit a pretty famous, unique story um, this morning, and I'm really looking forward to it. The story we're doing today is about, um, it's going to be about a wedding, and so I just need to tell you a couple things about a Jewish wedding before we get into it. A Jewish wedding really had five parts in three stages. Um, they would have what was initially the arrangement of the marriage where the families would agree to have, you know, uh, their son and daughter to get married, that it would, usually it was arranged. Uh, during that arrangement time, they would talk about um, the bride price that the groom would pay for, um, for that wedding. They would actually make up the covenant and agree to it, and the covenant, the covenant would be made with each other, and then they would have a betrothal ceremony where they, it would be kind of a small ceremony where they would, um, under, in a minute, you'll see a picture under a thing called a, a chuppah, they would um, make this, 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 they would enter into the marriage as a betrothed couple, and they would have a cup of wine together to kind of signify that. Now, that was not the wedding like we think of a wedding. They would be, they would be considered a couple at that time who were married. If they wanted to end that, they would have to be divorced, but the, the wedding wasn't final until probably about a year later when they would have the final wedding ceremony. The consummation of the wedding of the marriage would happen at that time, so it's, a, it's just we don't have this two-stage thing. And then after the betrothal ceremony, the groom would go away to his home um, with his father and his family, and he would spend an extended amount of time preparing um, a place where he and her would live, usually in the extended, if I, if I had a, I have it in my mind, a picture of what a normal Jewish like home would look like, they would be adding on another room where she would be. Usually that preparation time would be about a year that she would be in her home. Maybe she's in another village, but she's waiting for him. He would finish getting that place ready. The father would say, it's time. He would not even know the day. We're done. It's time to go get your bride. So he would grab friends and they would then make a processional to get her blowing horns along the way, frequently the, the shofars that we, you had last week, Kevin, and frequently they would do that at night, a little bit to surprise her, so she had to be kind of ready and, and giving watch for that, and they would take her back to the village or wherever the, that she would live, and there they would have the official wedding ceremony and where they would have that last cup of wine to seal the wedding and the marriage, and then they would have a wedding feast that would last, get this, seven days, seven days. And these were big events in those villages. It was like the central highlight of the year for them to do these things. Um, the bride, kind of like now, the bridegroom and his family, but the bridegroom especially was the one who had to provide all of the food and wine for those seven days. Can you imagine the expense of that? I, I saw one time the bill, I used to go to Volga German weddings in Hayes, Kansas, and one time I saw the bill for all the beer for one night. Can you imagine seven days of providing? Um, it's probably a good thing that it wasn't a German wedding in, in John chapter 2. So uh, the other per important person in the wedding was usually the master of the ceremonies who would be in charge of, um, he would preside over the thing, and he kind of had two roles. He was the life of the party. He'd be like the master of the ceremonies, and he would keep the thing flowing, keep it lively. And he also, though, was in charge of making sure that the food and the wine got distributed well, so it lasted the whole seven days. So the, the groom provided the wine and the food, but it was the master of the, I mean, the, this banquet, the lord of the banquet, the master of the banquet. It was his job to make sure that it got um, rationed out appropriately so it lasted the whole seven days. So that's kind of what um, a Jewish wedding was like. So we get to John chapter 2, and if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn there, John chapter 2. If you have a Bible on your phone to open that up, 
and we're gonna we're just gonna work our way through the story if you don't mind. Um, so in John chapter two, and we're in verse one. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and I've got a map here of that. Cana was about eight to nine miles north of Nazareth, and where, so this is where it was located. Um, you see Nazareth kind of just almost due south of it, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Um, so we, it kind of looks like, I mean, it's, it's close enough. There were probably friends in these different villages. It appears that Mary was the main one invited because it looks like in, when you get down to verse 5, she's playing some kind of a role because she's talking to the servants. Um, but Jesus is also invited because he's her son and he has some disciples that are there. We know that Nathaniel is one of his followers by now. We met him in chapter 1. And we're told at the end of John that Nathaniel was actually from Cana. So he may have been invited, we're, we're not sure. But anyways, Jesus and at this time probably five of his disciples were there with his mother at the wedding. Um, and again, this is a huge cultural event. This is a really big deal in that village. And so verse 3 says, when the wine was gone, which would have been a huge, a huge faux pas, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And this really was very significant. I was talking to a family who has a place where they host weddings. And they were talking about a few years ago, a very significant individual in Poria got married, and the caterer, there had been a miscommunication, and there was not enough food, and this was a really big to-do. And how that the, the groom who put all of this on was not very happy afterwards. The caterer was very ashamed of all of it. I mean, you can imagine the groom was ashamed. And we live in a culture that's not a shame culture, and that's a long explanation, Jack. I mean, we talked about that. This is an honor-shame culture where how people look at you is even so much more important to us. And so for them to run out of wine would have been like an absolute social disaster and a disgrace to, that, to the whole extended family. It would have been a disgrace not just to the bride and the bridegroom. It would have been a disgrace to their families. And this would have like ruined their reputations in that village and that area for years. This was a really, really, really big deal. I mean, this was a really big deal. It would have been a serious blow to the family's reputation. So Mary turns to Jesus and tells him they have no more wine. And we don't know what she's expecting. Um, we don't know if she's expecting a miracle. It could be that she, you know, her husband had died, Joseph. He was the oldest son. She had probably leaned on him for a lot of things, and she was used to going to him. She probably had found him very reliable. Don't you think she found Jesus reliable? Uh, he had shown that he had a heart of compassion. So she goes to him and tells him the problem. And he answers in verse 4. Something that tends to trouble people when they read it. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Um, the woman is something that kind of grabs people. It seems a little disrespectful that he would address his, his mother that way. A lot of translators talk about this actually is a very courteous and respectful term. In the Greek, it's more equivalent, people say, to, our, to the word ma'am in the south. Um, my parents were from Texas, so I grew up being taught that you call people ma'am. I did that quite a lot. People in Hayes thought I was funny because of how much I did it. But it was a very respectful, courteous thing. I even got in fifth, no, in sixth grade, I got sent to the principal's office because I called my teacher ma'am, and she thought it was disrespectful. And before I got the paddle, and I said, my parents are from Texas. They've told us this is like a good thing to say, you know. And so he finally let me go and uh, told her. But it, it's a respectful kind of thing. It doesn't look as bad as the woman. Um, but we do have to say, though, this was not customary for his day. He would normally call her mother. So for him to call her this is a little interesting. 
But that next phrase where he says, why do you involve me, is even more interesting because it is not rude, but it is a very abrupt, abrupt and strong statement in the Greek. And some translators tell us, perhaps it's best translated, why do you, what do you and I have in common as far as this matter is concerned? Or your concerns and my concerns on this issue are not the same. So that's a pretty strong statement. So she just says, hey, they're out of wine. And he's like, ma'am, respectfully, we don't have a commonality on this thing. We're not in the same place. Um, it's an intentional distancing he's making from her and probably would have been painful. I'm not a mother, so I don't know, but I've heard when, when, when your son first starts pulling away from mom, I still remember the first time Kieran wouldn't hold Pat's hand. It was in a Brahms, and that he started doing that distancing thing, and it wasn't fun for her. I hear it's painful for a mother. But he's been gone for a couple of months. He went to Jordan to meet his cousin, and she doesn't realize he's begun this ministry, and like his relationship with her has changed. It's no longer son-mother is the primary relationship. He now is on a mission, and it's father-son, and he's doing the will of the father. And so when she asks this, he's like, ma'am, respectfully, you and I don't have the same um, concern in this regard. And so he is distancing himself from her. And it probably was hard for her to hear. Part of, you know, Simeon in Luke 2 said that her heart would be pierced, so this is probably the beginning of that. Um, but look what he, he, he then says. He says, we don't have the same concern. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And for a long time when I read this, I just thought it meant, this is not, I don't want to start my ministry today. Like, I was going to start it tomorrow or next week. This isn't my hour. That's how I always took it. Then came to realize that in John, he uses the word hour of Jesus frequently, and every time he uses it, it's always talking about the hour of Jesus' death. So it is referring to his crucifixion. So he's saying, my hour to die on the cross has not come. She doesn't understand that. But that's what he's saying. My hour's not yet come. But anyway, she, uh, so what she's saying is, I'd like you to save this wedding. And Jesus is saying, we have different concerns here. You want me to save a wedding? I'm here to save all of humanity, and that means death on a cross. So there's kind of a difference. But I like her attitude in uh, verse 5. But his mother said to the servants, hey, do whatever he tells you. She's trusting him. This is probably a little painful, this feeling, this pulling away, but she's like, I trust his heart. I trust what he'll do. Whatever he tells you, I want you to do. So nearby, it says, stood six stone jars, the kind um, used by Jews. By the way, that's what the wedding would have looked like. Sorry about that. Um, nearby stood six stone, stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So there are these ceremonial jars that they would have used for making, washing the hands of everybody, cleansing the utensils so they'd be ceremonial and clean. This was not in the Torah. It was part of the religious leaders, the, the additional rules they had created that Matthew and Mark talked about. But those were standing by empty. And so he said to them in verse 7, I want you to fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and I want you to take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had much to drink. But you have saved the very best for this finest hour. And the, the, the master of the banquet doesn't even know that the, the wine has run out. And that he's about ready to lose his face in all of this. That he's about ready um, to be the guy that this whole party goes south because supposedly he has not stretched all of this out very long. But they take the wine to him, he tastes it, and he's like, 
um, this is the most amazing wine. And Jesus had obviously made, he was so surprised, the best, this was the choicest wine. Um, for me, I, uh, th- it would almost be like if, if, you, if at a wedding party for the first half of the party you were doing the regular Mountain Dew and then at the end you brought out the original flavor made with pure cane sugar instead of with corn syrup. Like It would be like breaking out the good Mountain Dew at the end. Or we have a few people from Texas, right? It would be like having the original Dr. I mean, the Dr. Pepper for a while, and then they bring out that imperial sugar, the original recipe, Dr. Pepper. I mean, it's like, you saved the best for last. Like, this is amazing. Um, so I love Jesus, his generosity, because this party's about to go flat. It was going to die, in fact. And he saved face for two families and for two individuals in particular, for that bridegroom and for the master of ceremonies. And he provided everything they needed to make that party work. That was about 150 gallons around there that he turned into wine. That would have made 2,400 servings of wine because they would have taken wine and mixed it with three parts water before they drank it. More than enough for an average village. So he amply, abundantly provided everything they needed to the very best quality. I mean, he was so Jesus. And he did it all without drawing attention to himself. He didn't put the spotlight on himself. Very few people knew. His disciples, his mother knew it. The servants knew it, nobody else. He wanted the spotlight on, on the bride and groom. Um, I just, I love the way, the way he did this whole thing. And then John tells us in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So in doing this sign, in doing this miracle, he was revealing his glory. He was showing his beauty, the magnificence of who he was, God incarnate, the word in flesh, as we're told in John 1. And he does it so they'll believe. Um, his, his signs and miracles are always to provoke belief. And this thing, his disciples believed in him, as we read through John, you're going to see this over and over and over and over, that the disciples are on a journey of belief, and they'll see another miraculous sign, or he'll say something else, and they'll believe, and there's this kind of continuing growing belief till the resurrection when they have ultimate belief in who he was. I think it's really interesting that John calls it a sign. Um, He calls the seven miracles in his book signs. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call them powers and miracles. It's a different word. Um, By John using this word sign, I mean, here's what a sign means. It means a significant display of power that points beyond itself to some greater reality. So it's trying to point beyond the miracle itself to a greater reality that it represents And that in each of the seven signs he's picked, that Jesus is showing something about truly who he is and what his mission is in these miracles. Um, So this is really important. So the question is that I think I've had for a long time is like, Jesus, if, if this is such a sign, like why this? Why is this your first miracle? Why is this one the necessary one to begin with? Because it does seem a little bit unnecessary, right? Think of so many of his miracles, the healing of the blind, the lame, a 13-year-old daughter who's going to die, a widow's son who dies, he raised from the dead, casting out demons. Those things are so necessary. I mean, people are just in slavery to something, and those things are, are just so, such big miracles. This one, it's just saving two families. I mean, bless them. I'm sure they appreciate it. It's just saving two families from political, from shame, um, from shame and a lack of reputation, okay? Do you see, it's like, to me, it's not the same high level of the other miracles. I'm like, why, why do this? If I'm Jesus, I mean, isn't that first miracle a really big one is where you're coming on the scene? To me, I'm going to do a really big one. 
like I'm gonna go up on top of a temple is what I would do and I would jump off and let the, air, let the angels carry me down during a big feast when there's hundreds of thousands of people there to see me and proclaim myself Messiah. That's my first miracle. Or I'm raising somebody from the dead just outside of Jerusalem, maybe a guy named Lazarus who's a friend, outside of Jerusalem when there's hundreds of thousands of people there for a festival so that everybody in Jerusalem knows what I've done. To me, that's my first miracle. Why is he doing this thing, just saving face for a couple of, of families? Because like that first miracle, it should be like, it's kind of a big word, quintessential. Like it should define who you are and what you're about. Like this miracle should show everybody who I am so that it's like really clear. And I'm like, how does this miracle do that, Jesus? How is this miracle this, this great sign? And I think if we were to ask him, he would say, that's a really good question. And I think he would take us to the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah. And he would say, I would show you several passages from the Old Testament about Messiah, but there's one in particular I think he would turn us to first, and it's Isaiah 25. And here's what Isaiah 25 says about the Messiah and his coming, the, Mes- the Messianic age. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged, of aged what? Of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Now, we encounter that somewhere in Scripture, right? In the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes again, a new creation. He will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And I could show you numerous passages um, in the Old Testament, but this is the main one, that the Jews of Jesus' age were expecting that when the Messiah came, after he defeated the Romans or whoever it was that oppressed them, that, and he brought in the new age, the Messianic age, that it would be like the great feast and a great banquet. This is exactly what they expected. Um, For me, it would be like having an eternal Thanksgiving dinner. Most of my family's not big on turkey, but I love it, and like it, to me, it's like, in their mind, it's this eternal feast with the Messiah present, where everything's made right. And, but for them, what they expected, I mean, they, they thought that there was the creation, the corrupt age we lived in, they were waiting for Messiah to come, at which point he would restore all things, he would come in judgment, destroy all of the nations, he would raise the Israelites who had died, he would raise them from death do new creation, and then forever and ever they would have this messianic banquet, this feast with him. That's what, that was what their expectation was. What we now know that they didn't is the Messiah would come twice, right? That he would come the first time, not to establish the feast, he would come the first time as a suffering servant to give us life for our sin. He would come the second time as the king, and at that time, this eternal feast, the banquet that he's going to put on will happen. Jesus spoke about this feast of the kingdom in Matthew 8. He says, I say to you, many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Luke, the same story, the feast in the kingdom of God. In Luke 14, he was at a table discussion with some Pharisees, and one of them said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, I want to tell you a story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything now is ready. Somebody said of Jesus' parables, the majority of them, if you pick one theme, it's the theme of a feast, that the feast of the kingdom. So this was important in his mind. And so here's what I want to tell you, because to me it's like, why this miracle, Jesus? This doesn't seem very defining. 
And I think what Jesus would say, based on the Jewish expectation and on the Old Testament, that this was the quintessential miracle. That by him turning water into wine, that he was saying, I am the Messiah, I am the one who will bring that messianic age, I'm the kingdom bringer, I am the one who will bring that great feast at the end of time. And I'm like, that's really cool, like, that's really cool to me. No wonder that's his first miracle, right? No wonder it's his first miracle. But I want to show you, Jesus expounds on this idea of this feast that they're expecting in the kingdom. In Matthew 22, he says something really interesting. He spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a banquet for his son. I mean, what kind of banquet? A what? A wedding banquet. For the first time, this idea of this, this messianic banquet, a wedding banquet gets attached to it, which has never been done before. Jesus is the first to do that. We know that Jesus it calls himself the bridegroom, or John in John 3 calls him the bridegroom. Ephesians 5 says we are his bride. So this idea of Jesus being the groom and us being the bride is a very important theme in the New Testament. And then we get to the book of Revelation, which talks about the end of history when Jesus comes in his return, and the idea of this great feast, this messianic feast, comes up again. And here's what it says in Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water, like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb. This feast at the end of the age, the Messianic feast, is going to be a wedding feast. Not just a feast, it's going to be a wedding feast. So now I'm like, okay, John 2 makes a lot more sense to me. Why this, his first quintessential sign was at a wedding. So I want to take you back to Canaan for a minute. Jesus, this is his first sign, and he's at a wedding in Cana. And Jesus is not married. So tell me, uh, I mean, I've been there at one time. Probably most people who are single, when you're single and you're at a wedding, I mean, you're enjoying the festivities, but usually you're thinking of something. What, what do you tend to think about when you're at a wedding and you're single? Maybe I'm weird in this. Huh? Do what? Yeah, getting married. You start thinking about, I wonder if I'm going to get married someday. Will I find a girl? Who is she? What will she be like? When will we get married? What will we do? You're thinking about your own wedding when you're at a wedding, and you're not married yet, right? That's, that's pretty normal. It's on their mind. And I think all that day with all these wedding festivities, that week probably, that it was Jesus was thinking about his own wedding feast, that one day he would be not only the master of ceremony, he would be the bridegroom at, okay? He's thinking of the great feast and new creation. And I really want to put you in, in his mind that day. And if I take this story, I want to do something with it. I want to take the Jewish wedding, and I want to put it in, in chronology with Jesus' life, okay? Because when he came the first time, when he came as our Savior, the suffering servant, that was the time he made the arrangement for his marriage to us, his bride. Um, that's the time that he paid the bride price to get his bride, and the bride price would be what? His death on the cross, okay? It would have been the time that he established the covenant, because that's when they did that. He did make a new covenant, and it would have been the time of the cup of the wine. Um, and that happened on the night before he died, right? That first cup of wine that he would have taken. 
And then there, that would have been kind of that ceremony where you become the bride. So through his death, burial, and resurrection, I become part of the church, which is his bride. And then Jesus leaves and ascends to heaven. And we're told in John 14, he says that I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is what a bridegroom did. So he went away to prepare a place, preparing the home. He's waiting for the father to say, it's time to go get your bride, right? And then one day the father's going to say, let's go get your bride. And with the blast of the horns and all of that, and hopefully we're ready and we're waiting, um, he will come and it will be the end of human history. Um, he'll come and put an end to sin and death. He'll do new creation. He'll raise all of us from the dead. And at that time will be the wedding ceremony and will be the great wedding feast, okay? So I'm sure he's thinking about this great wedding feast. But here's what I want you to think about as I've been thinking about this. Um, to get to that wedding feast, he had to go through something. I'm sure he's thinking about that wedding feast in the future in the Messianic kingdom. But he also knows to get to that wedding feast, he has to go through something. And what's he have to go through? The hour. And the hour is the hour of his death. And so he's thinking about this, that I'm going to throw a great feast. I am the messian. I am the, the true groom. I am the master, the true master of the, the eternal banquet. And he knows that to get there, he's going to have to go through death. And so when Mary comes, she says, hey, the wine's out. He's like, ma'am, sorry, but we're, we've got kind of two different agendas here. I've got on my mind a wedding that's in the future, but my hour has to come before that wedding. Because he knows before we can have the joy of that final wedding in eternity, that he had to go through the suffering on the cross to get us there. And I know, I, I'm sure, I mean, we know it was on his mind because he talks about my hour. But think about it, the, that whole wedding feast, you know, he keeps seeing cups get poured full of wine. And he probably has a cup that has that wine, the mix of one to three in his own cup. And when he's looking at a cup of wine, what do you think that reminds him of? What would a cup of wine remind him of? Yeah, the new covenant that I will establish in my blood. And not only that, but the cup that he prays in Gethsemane that he doesn't want to drink, the cup of God's wrath, okay? That whole wedding is reminding him that to get to his wedding feast, he has to die. He has to die. And that's the thing that's on his mind, the cross. So this brings us to communion. And when I taught communion a few months ago, um, I love God, there's four purposes listed in the New Testament for communion. One is is me humbling, remembering his death for my sin. So it's, it's taking me to the past. It is also powerfully uniting because we gather as a body one people around one cup. So this should be a uniting event reminding us that we are united around Jesus. The third thing was, uh, see if I can remember this, um, proclaiming the gospel. That every time we do this, we are, we are demonstrating the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, was rose again for my sin. But also, Jesus told us that part of what happens when we do the communion, the Lord's Supper, is we are also living in this glad anticipation of the eternal kingdom. And even today, specifically, we are living in glad anticipation of entering into that wedding feast with him, the feast of the Lamb, once he returns in the second coming. And that's really what I want to focus is that anticipation, that glad anticipation of that full and final coming. Because in Mark 4.23, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, after he had, Luke talks about two cups. When he had the first cup with them, he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And they had no clue really what he was probably talking about. But he's like, the next time I have this cup is going to be with you at the wedding feast for eternity. 
And so he says, I can't drink this again, but I look forward to the day when I can do that. So that idea of that glad anticipation. So when we drink the cup, yes, we remember his death, burial, and resurrection for us. But I also should drink this in glad anticipation of the great wedding feast that's coming and that this miracle um, prepares me for. Because on that day in new creation, Jesus will give himself fully to us and we will be fully his as his bride. The ultimate union, the ultimate embrace, the ultimate wedding, the ultimate feast that will go on and on forever and ever. And as C.S. Lewis says it, each chapter gets better than the one before each gets better than one for. Do you not long and look forward to the day that we will take the cup with him at that great wedding feast that he's provided to his death? So today that's what I want our focus to be is on that anticipation. So I'm going to invite you. There's four tables that have the elements. If you need the gluten-free, it's in the back by the, the sound booth, but would invite you to get up to, to get um, the thing. It's got both the bread and the the juice inside of it, and to come back to your seat and prayerfully reflect. Paul talks about we take this seriously. We, we reflect on where I am with the Lord right now. So I would like you to ask you to get that, come back to your seat, and just have a time of reflection, and then we will take the bread um, and the fruit of the vine together. So. First Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Paul does say that we ought to examine ourselves before taking the cup. Um, we are not to take it lightly. We um, are to feel the weightiness, I think, of what he paid, so we can have this feast and this banquet with him in the end. So, again, just one more minute, just to reflect and to prayerfully um, offer yourselves and myself to him before we actually take. None of us seeks after you as hard as we should. We come in confession. We come with a longing to know you more deeply, to follow you more intimately in our life. And so we're thankful for you giving everything on the cross so we can have that ultimate wedding feast with you.
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And if you're here and you're not a part of our church family, if you follow Jesus, you are welcome to join us. Um, This is open to everybody in the body of Christ. So we're told in Luke that they had left and found things exactly as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover feast in that upper room, and that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. says he took the bread, he held it up, and he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And I love the the word, the pour, and the imagery of that. Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it again anew in the kingdom of God. And to that I say, Lord Jesus, come, come. I long for that, that wedding feast with you. Okay, we want to close with the time of worship. And we want our worship really to focus on that, the end and when he comes and how worthy he is, that he's the one who bought that wedding feast for us. So would you stand with me as we, as we worship? Is he worthy of 
So we live in glad anticipation of that day when he will finish all things. All right, have a seat for just a second. We have a few people who uh, have become members of 12th. Um, they become covenant members with us. So Melissa Turney's on her way up. Um, I know the Buells are here, are in the house, and the McDonald's are here. Matilda coming back from doing the, the, the PowerPoint thing. Thank you, Matilda. Wearing her fine best from Ghana. I love it. So these folks recently have been through um, our membership process, which is a little bit different than what it used to be. We're really emphasizing the covenant nature of it. And when we talk about membership, I remember when I first became a Christian, the first time I heard about being a member, I thought like joining the country club or we didn't have Costco back then, but it's like that. That's not what it's talking about. The word membership, member comes from the idea that, that our body has many members or parts and so this idea of covenant membership, what it is, it's them just saying, I'm not joining a club, but it's them saying, I want to be a part of this body, I want to care for this body, I want to use my gifts for this body, I want to give for this body, I want to serve this body, I want to be in community with this body, I want to know and to be known. So it's just a commitment to being a member, a part of this family, that's what it is, into the family. So we use that member with family all the time, right? Hey, he's a member of my family. So that's what it's all about. So they've come and said, we want to be officially a part of this family called 12th. So got the Buells, Randy and Nadine. She's from 
just south of Hayes, so her and I are very close buddies because that's where we come from the same stomping grounds. And then Matilda's from Ghana. Isn't that really cool to have her? And we've got the McDonald's, Kevin and Heidi. We have Melissa. So can we, uh, can we give them, they, the, yeah, can we give them a round of applause? Yeah, the deacon said welcome them into membership about a month ago or a little over. And so uh, we're going to do the normal thing. We're going to have them stand at the back on the way out if you could just... Uh, give them the right hand of fellowship. I still don't know what that is. <laughs> when I became a Christian, I for sure that's like, oh yeah, you pull out like a right hand from your pocket and the right hand of fellowship. I don't, if you just shake their hand or just say hi, give them a fist bump and tell them you're glad to have them to be a part of the family, that would, that would be great. So um, would you stand? I'd like to close in a word of prayer. Close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for this first sign this turning water to wine at a banquet and how you were pointing to a reality greater than just that miracle, the fact that you are the true Lord of the banquet, you're the true groom and you were pointing forward to that day when we will all be with you and feasting forever with you and I long for that day to have that eternal table fellowship with you. So thank you for this reminder. Thank you that to get to that wedding feast, you had to pay that bride price. You had to go through the cross. You had to go through your hour. We're eternally grateful. Thank you for that reminder today. So we leave today, Lord, as sent ones. We want people to know this story, this good story, not just of your death and resurrection, but of eternal life with you and an eternal feast. So we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, you guys can head back. You are sent to say hi to them, and then let's live out the gospel this week.